0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 133, recorded on November 24th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. We start this week with great news for security researchers.
1: Yeah, Mozilla, GitLab, and Google have all increased
0: their bug bounty amounts. Yeah, I'll get to some of the dollar amounts here in a second, because these are some big numbers. But I thought it was noteworthy that Mozilla is expanding their program not only to include Firefox bugs, but also they're adding their core sites to their program like Firefox Monitor, uh, the Firefox private network, the, you know, a lot of their tools that they've been releasing as part of the overall Firefox brand are now getting included in part of their bug bounty program. And that's pretty neat. I also like to see what GitLab is doing, but I think the big story in all of this, like the real numbers, is the Android stuff. These are like
1: change your life kind of numbers. <laughs> Yeah, the top amount, if you find a security flaw in the Titan M secure element on the Pixel devices in a developer preview, is $1.5 million. I mean, that is life-changing.
0: Yeah, it, it really is incredible. And there's other numbers for other bugs, obviously. They're still pretty mind-boggling. There's a $500,000 reward, depending on the particular exploit category. There's a range here. But what I think it really is saying is that Google is getting more and more confident in the Pixel titan android stack overall yeah it's
1: saying that but it's also saying that they'd much rather have these vulnerabilities disclosed on their terms
0: yeah i can understand why it's a it's a much more manageable situation there And there's a lot of end users not to mention their reputation on the line a couple of highlights from 2019 so far their total payments google's in the last 12 months have been 1.5 million dollars Over 100 participating researchers have received an average reward amount of over $3,800 per finding. That, worth noting, is a 46% increase from last year. And you've got to assume with them up in the dollar amounts, along with Mozilla
1: and GitLab, that more people are going to go after this stuff. And we know there are already a lot of very shady companies finding these exploits and selling them. But obviously, it's better for everyone apart from those shady companies if it's done properly, like this,
0: and it gives these researchers an opportunity to put their name out there in a really legitimate way that looks good on a resume, and a little cash infusion never hurt anybody. But it also is an implicit acknowledgement by Google that they really are trusting the Titan M platform, because that's where a lot of this focuses on. But also Android itself, um, on the Pixel devices at least, and I think that matters when you're looking at the security optics of both iOS and Android. I think Google taking this position is a bigger picture issue that uh, matters more than it might look on the surface. Well, Google are keen to show that
1: they care about Android security, but also for Chrome OS. And this week, although not officially announced, we've got a good indication that Chrome OS devices are going to be required to support FWAPD and the LVFS project going forward.
0: This is outstanding news. I think we all know and appreciate that Up-to-date, secure firmwares are a critical part of a nutritious security diet, and you can't have a secure box if you're not updating your firmwares properly. Now, um, how you do that really varies vendor by vendor. And over the last year and change, we have seen a massive consolidation around LVFS and the FWUPDI service. I think this is pretty neat. I also now have a tinge of concern (laughs) because... This project needs a little structure, I think, at this point. And I have all due respect for Richard. He's done an incredible job. And who the hell am I to say? But we now have a lot of vendors on board with this thing and a lot of end users using this thing. And to bring on a whole bunch of Chromebooks, I feel, takes this to a whole new level.
1: Well, this comes from Richard Hughes's blog where he says he's been told by several sources but not by Google directly that from Christmas onwards, the designed for Chromebook sticker requires hardware vendors to use FWAPD rather than random non-free binaries. And then he goes on to detail exactly how these vendors should contact him and should go about implementing FWAPD. And it's quite complicated, to say the least.
0: What came out to me is he's a bit frustrated that... uh... This hasn't gone super smooth with previous OEMs. <laughs> he says here, I might, I might sound like a grumpy upstream maintainer. I apologize. I'm currently working with about half a dozen silicon suppliers who have all failed some or all of the above bullets. He goes on to say, I'm multiplexing myself with about a dozen companies right now and supporting Flupty isn't actually my entire job at Red Hat. This project has been such a game changer for the Linux landscape. Not just desktops, not just laptops, not just Chromebooks, servers too and this this project feels like it's getting pretty dang important. And I know it's been I know there's been some coordination with the Linux Foundation, there's been some changes there. But it kind of seems like maybe this is starting to become something important enough to dedicate full time to. Maybe it needs a project manager to help interface with these OEMs. I don't know. I'm just some podcaster in a studio, but I get a sense that this project has reached a new level. And um, I mean, really, when Lenovo came on board, let's be honest, when you started getting Dell and Lenovo and Acer and all these firmware updates for server platforms all started coming through LVFS, I think that's when we crossed a line of criticalness. But if Google's taking that sticker saying design for Chromebooks and saying compliance with this sticker means using LVFS in flepty we cross into a whole new threshold, Joe.
1: Well, yeah, hopefully Google are going to pony up the cash to make it happen because it's clearly going to be very important to them, especially for their security story. So maybe this really is great news for the project.
0: Oh, I think so. I mean, these are growing pains that I just brought up. I'm sure they can be solved. For all I know, Qsies is already well into a plan to solve this. Um, it sounds like from this post, things are a little frustrating today. I hope to see this take off, though. I mean, there's, there's so clearly a need for this. And um, if the more vendors we get into this, just the better the experience is for Linux users.
1: Well, I actually finally cracked on the Chromebook thing and ordered one over the weekend. Hopefully it'll be here within a day or two. It is an old one, it's used. It's an Acer Chromebook R11. It's got a touchscreen. It's one of those convertible things. Um, it's gonna be supported until June of 2022. So I'll have two and a half years with it, hopefully and I'm led to believe it supports Android apps and Linux apps, so it'll be good fun to play with it.
0: Have you seen if there's a firmware update available for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't got it yet, but I don't suppose it's going to be supported by this. It looks like it's
0: only going to be new ones, but you never know, fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Acer systems are supported, so maybe it's not a big deal for them to add support for older Chromebooks. Probably not likely, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I've been very keen to try it for a while, and I just thought, right, I'm going to have to do it. I got it pretty cheap. So, yeah, I'll be talking about that hopefully in the future.
0: Well, when you do get that and you get around to putting Debian on there, you may have <laughs> your choice of init systems all over again. It's like it's 2014 again, Joe. Yeah, I don't
1: understand this. I've been following it for the last few weeks, and it's a resurgence of the System D
0: and Debian debate. I thought that was all settled, but apparently not. It's a culture war, essentially, Joe, inside the project. So this all really changed back in 2014 when Debian switched to using Systemd as the default init system. The intent was that other init systems would be supported, but Systemd would be the default for Debian. Since then, technically that support has continued, but not very functionally. And during the last release cycle, some tensions exploded. And bugs have been turned into fights as a result of this. The project isn't moving forward. And so it's time for another general resolution to try to resolve this. But from what I can read, Joe, even how this general resolution has been gone about is sort of up for debate. Well,
1: yeah, initially, Sam
0: Hartman, the Debian
1: project lead, made three proposals, which is quite unusual, proposal A, B, and C. But then Ian Jackson came in with a slightly more nuanced proposal. But then there was even a fifth proposal by Dmitry Bogatov. And it feels to me that Sam Hartman was trying to push things towards system D has one. And although it's kind of nice if we can support the other init systems, system D is progressing at quite a pace, adding features and the other init systems are just going to be left behind. So just kind of deal with it.
0: Right, and that's in contrast with another philosophy that, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, that I see as Debian should be a platform for everyone, for any contribution, no matter how small. And secondly, it's incredibly harder for projects to rip out the init system upstream. So if Debian goes with systemd, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that projects like Ubuntu get affected by that, where if they remain a universal platform of sorts, then the distribution's... Built off of Debian can mix and match how they like, and it allows for just about anyone to participate. But there's no structure and process in place to determine what to do when something is blocking a release or when somebody isn't maintaining something. Like all of this, has to be politically formalized, more than just what the bug trackers uh, process is. But it has to be something that's politically formalized. And I don't think there's the will right now. So I do think I agree with you that there's Sam's approach, and then there's a more philosophical approach so that are essentially at conflict here. And I honestly thought this was resolved when the Dev1 split happened. Well, so did I. I thought Debian
1: was going all in on System D, and leaving the init diversity and freedom to Dev1. But I think the problem here is that Debian has tried to be all things to all people, the universal operating system, but what people were concerned about back in 2014 was that System D was going to take over. And it pretty much has, because if you look at the features of System D, there aren't really parallels with the other init systems. So you're inevitably going to have incompatibility. And you're going to have to make that decision at some point to just cut the others loose and somewhat support them, but just concentrate on System D. I, I just don't really see. The argument against it, really, because you're going to either have to use system D and not all of its features and fully support the other init systems, or you just have to let them fall by the wayside. And we have Dev One for the other init systems, so why not just go all in on System D?
0: It seemed like that was the case initially with that split. However, reading into this for this story, I really got down into the weeds. And this is going to the core of the project. There is, at the core of this thing, a health problem with the project and how they discourse in weaponizing bugs and in their core philosophy. They can't agree. There are fundamental issues over at Debian, and that's what this story is showing us. And the more I read into it, the more I can kind of see both perspectives— there is a place for a great universal operating system that has a bunch of great init systems. Because if you look at them as all great open source projects that offer something unique and compelling for different use cases, then it makes a little more sense. Like say, a really low powered IoT device. Wouldn't it be great if Debian could be a perfect base of an operating system for IoT devices? But perhaps default Debian might be getting too heavy. There's a lot of situations where, for containers, it's nice to have a very simple system in the container. Yeah, but isn't that what things like Alpine are for? Can you really be a universal operating system in 2019, 2020, and beyond? I think for a certain demo, the people that are really fighting for this thing, they feel like they've been looked over by the system D has one crowd and that they just get dismissed. So all that said, I can totally understand your perspective because that was essentially mine until I really dug into this And now I sort of see both sides, and I don't know which way they're going to go. But I think it's going to fundamentally define the future of the project. I look at this as architectures. Every really good architecture has a use case for Debian that can be defended and justifies its development time and resources. And when an architecture doesn't, after a while, they tend to let it go. I wonder if that kind of methodology and approach couldn't be applied to init systems. Um, But um, perhaps because of the political situation, that is much easier said than done. Well, there's going
1: to be a lot of discussion in the project, and they may come to a conclusion with this, but I've got a feeling
0: it might rumble on for another five years. Well, here's something we'd only see in 2019. IBM and Microsoft are working together via the Linux Foundation to fight patent trolls. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't see this
1: one coming, but it kind of makes sense in retrospect. You've got a coming together here of a lot of powerful entities within the Linux and open source world, including Microsoft, which we just have to accept these days that they're one of them. And hopefully this means we're going to see an end to these patent trolls attacking open source software.
0: I see it that way. These names, with this annual subscription and the overall Open Innovation Network's huge patent portfolio to begin with, essentially are sending the message that for a large portion of IP that cover Linux, We're closed for business now. The patent troll stuff isn't going to work. It doesn't mean everybody's safe, like Shotwell, for example. But it does mean a lot of the infrastructure that business is built on is safe. And that matters because people that are building products on free software and open source technology, they want to know that they're safe, they can operate, they can sell, and they're not going to get sued once their product hits the market.
1: Well, yeah, and that probably explains why Microsoft and IBM are working together on this. They have a
0: common goal here. Yeah, it does make sense. It's just so weird for me. Um, I live in Microsoft's backyard, and the early days of Microsoft were defined by betrayal from IBM. And so friends and family members that worked for Microsoft had a real hatred for IBM. So it's just weird. It's really weird. But that's been the sub-headline to all these Microsoft and IBM stories for the last two to five years now. And so that weird is just kind of become the new normal. <laughs> It really has started to become the new normal.
1: Well, supply chain attacks seem to have become the new normal. And I always like to end on a cryptocurrency story, so I couldn't resist this one. The official Monero website was hacked this week, and some of the binaries were replaced with currency-stealing malware. Why bother trying to mine it when you can just steal it, eh?
0: (laughs) It's the worst when it's a a wallet that's stealing your money. That's really something. Oh, man. Um, And it's so embarrassing when it's the binaries. It's not just like... Um, some text on the website, but the actual binaries for Windows and Linux were replaced. So if you downloaded any Monero wallet software on Monday the 18th of November 2019, between 2.30 a.m. UTC and 4.30 p.m. UTC, you definitely need to check the hashes of your binaries.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry to report. This is a really bad look for the project. If you're serving up downloads of binaries of wallet software, you need... To make sure that it's secure and that people are not having their currency stolen.
0: <laughs> no kidding. As we record, just a just a note: the current price for Monero is forty-eight dollars and ninety-one cents in U.S. greenbacks. <laughs> so that's uh, that's they, they did it all for fifty bucks. <laughs> I wonder how well, many fifty. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many coins they got. I guess maybe somebody could actually check because there'd have to be a blockchain event, right? Yeah. Well, they've got to be worth more than the Dogecoin that I've still got. (laughs) It's definitely profitable if you don't mine it. If you just steal it, I hear that uh, cryptocurrency is much more profitable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. You know, we're getting dangerously close to the end of the year when we'll have to talk about the Bitcoin price again.
0: I know. And and for a short period of time, it looked like it was going to possibly pop 10000 but again, as we record today, it's also not doing so well. It's, it's down to $7,000. So, Not that I'm watching. I'm not watching, though. <laughs> of course not. I kind of wanted to see Monero be successful, and not that it hasn't failed. I shouldn't say it like that, but the thing I liked about Monero is that it was a privacy-focused currency that, I don't know, I, I see a need for that, especially for... Uh, political dissidents and uh, journalists and countries like imagine imagine trying trying to be a journalist exposing government deeds in China right now like what are you using to buy your goods and pay people that are helping you like you you know there's a need for these kinds of things it, it may be in the west people might have cushy lives and you know a nice stable government currency and they don't need to worry about this but there are absolutely individuals in the world that need something like this and then I just totally geek out on the idea of an open source currency that's backed by math. That's that's so much cooler than paper money that we just assign value to, just from like a geeky perspective. So Monero was one of the ones I was kind of secretly saying, come on, come on, go for it. But not a lot of trading volume compared to where I thought it would be by now. And just sort of one bad story after another, Joe. Well, bad news in the
1: cryptocurrency world is always good news for me because it gets me closer to that $2,000 Bitcoin value on December 1st that I predicted.
0: Damn it, Joe. (laughs) It's not (laughs) worth taking down the whole currency, Joe, not for a damn prediction. (laughs) These stupid predictions. Well, check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch
1: with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news.
0: I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.